Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I recently learned about Disney bounding. What? Disney bounding. But what is it? (laughs) So, Disney bounding is when you don't dress in the costume of a Disney character, but you style your clothes to look like a Disney character. Who have you come as today? (laughs) I've come as Ghostbusters today, obviously. That's not Uh, a Disney character. Yeah, it's not a Disney character. I mean, it's not a sex thing, but I'm absolutely certain that some people make it a sex thing because people... I think you'd be bang on the money there. (laughs) They'd be banging on the money. (laughs) Um, and I'm Jen Offord and I started watching the first series of Line of Duty this weekend so I guess I'll see you in a month or so yeah Jen board (laughs) rolled through the door she's got a plastic gun it's terrifying always later on I chat with comedian Joe Caulfield about her sister Annie Caulfield's last book My Cambodian Twin Annie who died in November 2016 was a remarkable writer and one of the standard issue contributors and her final tale is an incredible one I catch up with Imriel Morgan to hear about the Shout Out Network's second Content is Queen Women's Podcast Festival. Back in June last year, we grabbed time with remarkable, award-winning screenwriter and all-round top woman Sally Wainwright, who tells us about her new HBO slash BBC Saran Jones starring drama Gentleman Jack, which finally hits UK screens on Sunday the 19th of May. Whoop, whoop, whoop. In Jenny Off The Blocks, we chat to Natalie Lee, a.k.a. Style Me Sunday, about body positivity and running in your pants. And you'll know it's just me and Jen for the next couple of weeks as Hannah's off doing Dunleavy doings. So no, Dunleavy does dystopia, but it will be back in June. And now, Baker, Benefits and Bin Bags. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we full-on cheer, whoop and holler for the staggering talent of the women at this year's BAFTAs. Oh, and we're also chuffed that they wore frocks they like. But that's not the point of the awards, is it? No Daily Mirror tale, no it is not. I'm picking out that particular red top because it decided to have a pop at several women's outfits and therefore needs to jog on. It's allowed back in 10 minutes, but only so I can tell it to fuck right off again. Now, I don't give a monkey's what someone's wearing to an award ceremony as long as she's having a lovely time and her get-up makes her feel like the tits. Also, we wouldn't usually be mentioning good news this high up in the Bush Telegraph, but hey, you know, given we'll soon be back screaming into the abyss, why not? And so, a massive shout-out to the kick-ass Daisy May Cooper, who attended the BAFTAs clad in a 60-litre bin bag dress designed by her mum and complete with bin lid and pigeon hat. I'm going to call it a hat. I decided I would donate the money I would spend on a normal dress to a food bank and come as a bin bag, said Daisy. I mean, if you didn't have heart eyes for her already... I literally have only just got the joke as well. That's how stupid I am. Come in a bin bag, innit? Yeah. 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 What a dick. <laughs> Me, that is. Five Live presenter Danny Baker found himself on a doorstep for very different reasons this week after he was sacked by the BBC. Baker was accused of racism after tweeting a picture of a chimpanzee captioned Royal Baby Leaves Hospital, which doesn't look great when you consider the ethnicity of Archie Windsor, the new baby of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and not, as his name would suggest, the new mechanic in EastEnders. I mean, give him time. He might grow up to be the new mechanic in EastEnders. Maybe he will. He does come from an acting dynasty, after all. There you go. If you want to call it that. We're going with it. (laughs) Baker claimed it was a joke. He'd not been thinking, he apparently didn't even know he was referring to (laughs) Megan's baby. 
<laughs> this isn't my doorstep. I don't know who you are. This isn't my I'm, real face. I'm wearing a fez. Yeah. Uh, uh, Megan, who whose mother is, of course, African-American, Baker tweeted it had never occurred to him that this tweet might be construed as racist because, quote, his mind is not diseased. Alas for Baker, the BBC took uncharacteristically prompt action and sacked him, stating the tweet goes against the values we as a station aim to embody, causing Baker to lash out against the BBC's masterclass of pompous faux gravity, which I suppose is one way of putting it. Now, I say uncharacteristic given the corporation's rather inconsistent approach to this kind of thing. Oh, really, Jen? Got any examples? (laughs) How about (laughs) Nigel Farage being invited to air his arguably racist views pretty much every day by some kind of BBC News production. Oh, sorry, Jen, I couldn't hear that. I was listening to Nigel Farage on all of the BBC channels. Or how about Lord Sugar keeping his job after posting a picture of the Senegalese national football team last summer photoshopped as if to show them selling counterfeit sunglasses and caption, I recognise some of these guys from the beach in Marbella. You're fired. <laughs> You're not fired. Oh, you are keeping your job. Still, cue a Twitter storm about everyone being too oversensitive. Danny Baker isn't a racist, it was decreed. And yet he did tweet something quite racist. With you with your facts, Jen. So, I don't know, intentional or otherwise, he sort of deserves to lose his job, right? Right, yeah. 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 I'd like to talk about the dangerous language used by the media and justice system around domestic violence and abuse. And yeah, I know I said that last week, but it's not getting sorted anytime soon, it seems. Mm. This week, Alexander Heavens, a man who conducted a 12-month campaign of physical and emotional abuse on his then-girlfriend, Stacey Booth, was convicted of coercive control, but was spared prison and told by the judge that, quote, everybody is entitled to a second chance. Put this behind you, put her behind you, there are lots more fishes in the sea, and watch how you go. I'd like to be more eloquent, but Fury won't allow it. So, fuck you, Judge Martin Woodland. Get in the fucking sea yourself. Also, it's fish. The plural of fish is fish. (laughs) (laughs) Woodland sentencing and remarks show absolutely no understanding of coercive control. It is 2019 and still around two women a week are killed by their partner or ex-partner in England and Wales. Coercive and controlling behaviour is a serious crime and it needs to be treated as such. I mean, everyone is entitled to a second chance. Does this judge actually know like, what the premise of the like, UK judicial system is? I mean, I'm going to guess yes, because he's where he is, but it sounds like no, doesn't it? Because that, that's sort of how it works, isn't it? Like, you, you do you do your time, yeah. and then you get your second chance. Yeah. Like, you redeem yourself, basically. But don't even get me started on schoolboys died in cliff fall with father after he lost faith in God, which was a headline in The Times. The truth of the story being a man drugged and stabbed his wife to death before jumping off a cliff and pulling his two kids with him. Fuck off The Times, just... Just can they all just fuck off? Yes. MPs have called for an inquiry into the death of an 82-year-old woman by suicide after an administrative error led to her pension being stopped. Joy Worrell was found dead near her home in Flintshire in November last year, having been living in poverty and too proud to ask for help and support, according to her MP, David Hanson, who said quite rightly that he was horrified by the case. I know, it is 
one of the saddest stories I've read in a really, really long time, actually, and there are quite a few of those about I mean, at the minute. there's a lot to choose from, yeah. Um, the Department of Work and Pension said it apologised unreservedly for the error and said it promised to learn the lessons from it. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm sure will be of huge comfort to Ms Worrell's family. Well, you know, I hope they sent it in a letter so they can frame right. it and, you mm. know, put it in... Joy's favourite chair, because I'm sure it will be exactly the same. Yeah. <sighs> okay, go on. We all need it. Let's have double good news. Turns out it's not just Tommy Robinson that brings all the milkshakes to his yard. In Cornwall, two protesters threw milkshake at Carl Benjamin, who you'll recall from last week's BT is UKIP's European election candidate and a renowned cunt. <laughs> I mean, credit to Cornwall. The protesters at Benjamin's gathering on Lemon Key in Touro last week were hilariously inventive. Not only was milk shaken and spilt, but a woman was prevented from throwing kippers at Benjamin, while another protester played loud jazz on a trumpet to drown out the rally speakers. Now, I know, I know, I know, this kind of behaviour is not to be encouraged. So, you know, don't throw milkshake at cunts, kids. You might get into trouble. Quite. And in good news, numero dos, you remember our pal Whaley McWhaleface, the could-be Russian spy we spoke about last week? Yeah, how's he doing? Well, he's back in the news this week, being a suspiciously charming motherfucker, making friends and influencing people in the harbour of Hammersmith, Norway. I thought you were going to say Hammersmith, London. No, confusingly, there's a place called Hammersmith in Norway. Fair enough. There you go. According to thegoodnewsnetwork.org, Ina Mansika was one of a group of pals who took a boat out in the hope of capturing a glimpse of the now-famous beluga whale and got a bit excited when she saw him and dropped her phone in the sea. But it's all right, because moments later, there he was, the whale, with Mansika's phone in his actual chops, just returning it to her, casual-like. Rumours that the whale also had a bowl of rice (laughs) remain unconfirmed. Did the whale actually rescue the phone? Yeah, there's a video of it on the on the website. You like it actually pops up with the phone in his mouth. Oh my god! And then she just you know has it back. Oh, I love him. I know he sounds amazing. The spy who returned my phone. <laughs> the whale who spied me. The spy who whaled me. That's different. That's the uh, that's high up on the erotic fiction list. More news next week. <laughs> Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we head on down to Georgia to take a look at what's happening with women's rights and sweet holy fuck, it is a horror show. Let's start with the heartbeat bill. Last week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed perhaps the most extensive and comprehensive heartbeat bill in the US. The law, which is set to go into effect in 2020, not only bans abortion when the embryo has a, quote, detectable human heartbeat, it also declares that an embryo is a, quote, natural person under state law. But what does that mean in real terms? Well, what it means is a ban on abortion as early as six weeks into a pregnancy or just a week or two after a woman discovers her period is late, let alone that she is pregnant. Now, there's been a lot of knee-jerk reactions exclaiming that women could face prison or indeed the death penalty for terminating a pregnancy or indeed having a miscarriage if that miscarriage was deemed in part through her own neglect. And though facially plausible because of that declaration that an embryo is a, a natural person, mm. as Planned Parenthood's Stacey Fox said, 
HB 481 could not be used to successfully prosecute women, but if a woman had a miscarriage, she could be pulled into an investigation looking at whether someone performed an illegal abortion on her. There is no doubt that laws like these deny women agency over their own bodies and put their health and lives at risk. And just this year, US states have introduced more than 250 bills restricting abortion access. Truly terrifying times. Fucking hell. And as if to add fuel to the already blazing fire that Georgia doesn't give a shit about its women, WSB TV, which bills itself as Atlanta's number one source for breaking news, weather and traffic coverage you can count yep. on. It's my, it's my go-to. Absolutely. Ran the story that two prostitutes have been murdered in the same community and neighbours are, quote, fed up. Fed up seems a bit mild, doesn't it, when it comes to women being murdered? Mm-hmm. Mm? Yeah. Well, hold your horses, because it's not the murders that are getting on residents' tits. Rather, it's the ongoing prostitution problem. Won't someone think of the house prices, for God's sake? Now, I probably would have focused on the murders instead of the sex work, but I'm just very much anti-murder. It isn't just you, Jen. I, too, am not a fan of murderers. Or, indeed, of WSB TV's reprehensible bullshit. Hello. Would you like to see our faces? Yes, you would. Mickey is making a face at me right now. Oh, imagine if you could see the face I was making. It's extraordinary how I can stretch my features to such grotesque (laughs) proportions. Well, come and see our faces on June the 8th at the Underbelly Festival on the South Bank in London, where we will be in conversation with Jane Horrocks and more guests TBA. We're also back in Edinburgh for the fourth year. And I mean, seriously, last year we got Janine Garofalo and Sue Pollard on the same stage. There's never been such times, but there could be such times again, but with different people. Anyway, there's a way to find that out, and that is to get yourself some tickets. And tickets to all of our shows are available on our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. Check it out. Check us out. Buy a ticket. Thanks. Hello, Mickey here. I have got excellent woman, Joe Caulfield, on the phone. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're here to talk about something that's very close to your heart. So can you tell us about the new book, My Cambodian Twin, and why it is particularly important to you? It's written by my sister, Annie Caulfield, and this was the last book she wrote. She died in November 2016. This book was hugely important and it was her partner, Martin, who sort of edited it. So she'd finished it, but she hadn't quite edited it because she got ill halfway through this book. So he had said to her, are you going to talk about the illness? (laughs) She had inoperable lung cancer. And Annie kind of humped at her and went, I might do. He sent me a copy then of the book when he'd sort of edited it and put it in some sort of shape. And it was really surprising how... Really, she had not mentioned it except to say in a really kind of, oh, so what way. She said, oh, I've got lung cancer. But, you know, worse things happen at sea sort of thing. But then as you read the book and what's interesting is the way Martin, her partner, has done this. I think it's chapter seven. He puts in what he calls an interruption because the first half of the book she wrote when she was well. And then the second half is when she knows she's got inoperable cancer. Mm -hmm. We both have talked about it a lot, but I feel it informs your reading of the book because I feel there's so much in it that is about what are those precious moments in life, about enjoying things. 
Prince. The book is about this lady called Sophia, who friends of hers met in Cambodia. And she's a classical Khmer ballet dancer, the ancient Cambodian way of dancing. And she was trying to set up a school to teach young kids to do this because it had nearly been wiped out during the days of Khmer Rouge. She is seven when the Khmer Rouge take over. So she has a huge story to tell about that. Her brother disappears, is taken away, how she avoids being basically put in a truck and taken, because she's a very pretty girl, taken to be used by the soldiers. Mm. But she manages to avoid that. So there's a big story that she has to tell. But I think it's very funny. It's very, very Annie the way it starts. And I'm just going to read from her introduction at the beginning of the book. She goes... Why is it so irritating when friends say, oh, you must meet so-and-so, they're so interesting, you'll really like them. Perhaps it's not irritating to you. Perhaps you are not a curmudgeonly soul who really likes only a handful of people. And I prefer to find people for myself and decide about them for myself. Then again, I did really like the people who were telling me about the interesting woman they'd encountered on the other side of the world. Well, there was the first difficulty with this interesting new person. I couldn't just cross London, have a cup of tea, say, oh, sorry, don't like her. I'd have to go to Cambodia. (laughs) So this is very Annie because she said there was nothing more annoying than people saying, oh, write a book about such and such. But actually, she was very interested in this woman and her life. And she goes to Cambodia because she thought, oh, this is going to be my Eat, Pray, Love book. And she hated Eat, Pray, Love absolutely loathed it couldn't believe that people fell for it but she goes oh i'll go and have some kind of experience with somebody in the east and it'll make my fortune and then she met the woman and she went oh she's really bad tempered and irritable and i've got to almost audition to tell her story and this is all in the book and it's so not what she was expecting and she really liked sophia because she was an irritable grumpy woman like herself (laughs) Um, and Sophia says they're very alike this is not long after they first met and uh, so this is at the very beginning of the book and why it's called My Cambodian Twin and she says one person at our table had lived through the 20th century's second most efficient genocide the other one had not on the surface there were dozens of obvious differences between us my childhood lived as a child and Sophia's lived on the brutal Khmer Rouge regime So why has Sophia just said, it's interesting, Annie, I have realized that we are very alike. Let's start with those surface differences. Lie, there's a willow wand, up, down, and sideways. Sophia was about half my size. She was perfectly groomed from her manicured toes to the white magnolia flower she had just absentmindedly put in her long, flowing black hair. Now, if I'd picked up a windfallen flower to try any sort of casual adornment, I'd have ended up with a bee-stung head. (laughs) Or look as though a flower had just been thrown down by a spiteful tree lizard because tree lizards would look at me and go, oh, there's something about her face we don't like. And now I'm going to jump because this is also part of it. So they're very outwardly different, but also they were the same age. She says there wasn't simply a vast difference in experience between me and Sophia. We perceived the whole world differently. Sophia believed in God, spirits, reincarnation. She had a Buddhist altar taking up half of her living room. When she meditated, she told me she could take her mind and soul away from the earth. She could look down from far above. I could imagine what her real life had been, but I knew I wouldn't catch even a fleeting heel of her beliefs. This magical flying soul, Sophia, left me staring blankly. I'd ask questions, but the answers, too, would just flip past me like elves. 
Sophia could leave her troubles for another place. I knew I'd be fixed in my plodding skepticism wherever anything befell me. At a rock concert long ago, I'd avoided the rain by ducking into a tent of a hippie fortune teller. She gave me a small crystal to hold. Then she grasped it, eyes closed. She opened them, shook her head and gave me my money back. She said she couldn't see anything about me in her crystal because I had no spiritual life. Good, I thought, as I indignantly pocketed my money and went out into the rain. I'm glad the crystal can see that I'm no fool. So there's a lot of sort of mixedness about her feelings, you know, about Eastern wisdom. Like she, she meets this guy that Sophia thinks of as the most wise of all men. And it turns out he's American and looks a bit like Eric Morcom. And Annie was just like, this is not what I was expecting as the font of all wisdom, you know. So it's her telling Sophia's story. And also the idea was to raise money so that she could then have this little school to teach children ballet because she thinks it's a way of just sort of helping and healing. When Annie got so ill, it was very late diagnosis. The oncologist said, look, in another hospital, they might just give you palliative care and that's it. They wouldn't have even attempted to try anything. But he said, I'm going to go for it. And he said, what do you want to do? And he said it sort of very quietly. He said, what's important to you? And Annie said, I want to finish this book. I want to go back to Cambodia and finish this book. And so he said, right, that's the aim. Mm -hmm. So when she did, she went through all chemo and radiation. And at one point, when they first started it, she was so weak, they had to stop. And they thought, maybe we're not going to be able to give her any treatment. And she would have had six months to live. But then she sort of rallied and they did the treatment. And it sort of really, it did give her, I would say it gave her, it gave her another year of life. And in that year, she did manage to go back to Cambodia and she took a picture up on this mountain and Dr. Tom, the oncologist, he has it on his desk because she said, you know, I'm going to send this to you and it was you who got me here. But I think when you read, it's reading the book, you just feel she's looking for those moments in life and how people overcome, like Sophia, what she's overcome in her past, um, that you can still live a happy life. You, there's still amazing things about being alive. And you can just feel that of someone who realizes how precious life is yeah, and is noticing all of that. But at the same time, it's still got her nice sort of grumpy acerbic humor <laughs> as well. There's no doubt that Annie was a cracking writer. We were lucky enough to have her write for us when we were a magazine. And it's always her very distinct voice. How did it feel for you reading that? Her forward to the book really took me short. Now, she did a lot of travel writing. For about 20 years, she would go traveling around the world and then write interesting stories and about the people she'd met and everything. But she was starting to write more personally. And she says in the foreword, I wasn't going to do this kind of writing anymore. I'd sort of got to an age where I could face myself. That's kind of what she says. And I realized that everything I wanted to write about was actually inside me already, in mm -hmm. my head. But it had taken her a long time to have courage or to write about herself. And I think the first thing was when they had tried IVF and then egg donation. And that was incredibly personal. And she wrote about it and she wrote a play about it for Radio 4. So when she says at the beginning of the Cambodia book, this is the last time I'm going to do this, she meant this is the last time I'm going to do one of these kind of outside myself books. And I thought, 
sad because it was her last book, but she didn't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. But then I thought how sad because she was about to start on a whole new journey of writing. I'm still thinking about it actually to go, oh God, you know, that how that hit me that then she didn't get to do that. It sounds like when you said Martin does his editing interruption, mm. it sounds like she almost started to do that a little bit in the second part of the book once she knew her prognosis. I think that's the thing that Martin and I felt because we really, what we really wanted was to make sure that we thought she would have liked this or she would have done it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said about when she'd had something so personal and so upsetting as the egg donation not working that she did write about it once she was through it. So Martin and I kind of went, no, she, was, she would have written about it when she got through it. Yeah. She wasn't one of those, you know, and there's all different ways of dealing with cancer. She was very private about it. She wasn't somebody, you know, writing a diary saying, oh, today, you know, threw up 20 times and, you know, I look like shit. She kept it in a very small personal circle. But I think that was just the, the fear, the vulnerability. She felt incredibly vulnerable when she was ill. But I think she would have written about it afterwards. And, I, and Martin putting in the interruption, just saying how, how extremely shocking this was when they got the diagnosis. Um, they had no idea she was ill. She thought she had back pain. And the doctor says, right, I'm going to get you in tomorrow for chemo. And Nanny said, well, I can't. You know, I'm busy. I've got appointments and things. And, and you know, she didn't realize. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. no, you, you have no choice in this. So um, I think the way Martin has put it, and then he tells you, you know, what happened to her because it was straight after she comes back from Cambodia that she has a seizure. And she thinks she had one in Cambodia, but just thought it was the heat. But that's when the cancer spread to the brain. So it was spreading everywhere. So it's it's incredible that she did manage to go and that she did finish the book. She was sitting up after her first brain operation in the hospital when I went in, writing on her laptop, going, and all kind of, you can't, it's my, my brain's fine, my brain's fine. So like, you know, this was the day after the operation and she was so excited because she worried it would alter her brain and then she wouldn't be able to write. But she was all like, oh, my brain's fine. I'm off my head on some kind of medication. I'm writing. (laughs) And she was really positive, just so thrilled that she still had that, you know. Yeah. And obviously she took to writing with the IVF play. She took to writing Mm. as catharsis. And you wrote really beautifully for us about the pain and confusion of Annie's death after she died. So it clearly runs Mm. in the family to get it out there a little bit. Yeah, and I'm really sort of grateful to Standard Issue because I'm still writing. Because people kind of got in touch and related, Mm. so I'm writing a lot more. And it really helps me to write it because it's sort of writing about her. Lots of of funny memories and things and things how I think she really informed my life so much. But also kind of little things I learned about when someone's ill, how to deal with it, and the things that you you don't usually see in movies, like when they might turn on you and you can't do anything right, you can't do anything to please them, and mm-hmm. they're just sort of raging at you. But it's fear, it's like an animal fear in her, and I could see it, and she would just lash out. What she really didn't want was anyone to say out loud, you're dying of cancer. Now, other people can cope with that. 
and they deal with it very differently. So I think that's the thing. Everybody is completely different. With her, it was like, no, I'm fine and it will be fine. Although she had written the will, she had written out her entire funeral, how she wanted it. (laughs) And she had also said to me one day, oh, I think I would like Martin to meet somebody. He's a very good boyfriend. So she put a few things in place. So she, you know, she did know, but it was just, it was for her to know, not for us to say. Yeah, so I just thought anything that I'd learned and also then about grief, about how I really don't think we talk about it enough and we expect people to just get over things or not, not embarrass other people by talking about it or mentioning it, you know. And I think we should do a lot more of mentioning and remembering and talking about the person. My Cambodian Twin is available on Amazon, as are many of Annie's books, and the BBC Radio 4 play, also called My Cambodian Twin, which is about Annie's struggle to actually finish the book, was broadcast in May, but you can still listen to that on catch-up. The plays are absolutely amazing, I think. Martin, her partner, wrote it, and he managed to combine the book. So the, the scenes of Annie writing, so he's sort of reading the book in a way when she's in Cambodia, but also all the hospital scenes, but also... The humour, how funny they were with each other, and that's how they got through it by, you know, being still being able to enjoy their lives together was really important to her. Where can people find out more about Annie? Martin has done a new website. It's AnnieCorfield.org is the website. But as you say, there are lots of books on Amazon. And also we did set up a Macmillan tribute fund. Uh, which is just, if you go to Macmillan, they have tribute funds, it's Annie Caulfield tribute fund, and we've got, I think, 12 and a half grand in there now that Amazing. has been donated. That's incredible. Yeah, so that's really good, yeah. And what about you and your writing? Where can we find out more about that? I think it is a book. I think it's going to be called An Absent Presence, and it's about wanting people to know her, but it's also, I think it's writing, because I, I think she would have written it. And I weirdly feel it's like she's given that gift She's passed it to me now because I wouldn't have written something like this without her. Is it wrong to say I really enjoy doing it? No, I think she loves that. I really enjoy sitting and thinking about it. And it's weird because I think, oh, God, that's why you loved writing so much. It's a really lovely thing to do. I like being with you and thinking of things. And yeah, so, so I think it's a gift she's, she's handed on to me. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. I'm joined on the phone by Imril Morgan, CEO of the Shout Out Network and host of the very excellent Wannabe podcast. Hi, Imril. Hi, Jen. Lovely to have you back on the podcast. Great to be back on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You've come to talk to us about the Content is Queen Women's Podcast Festival. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how it came about? Last year, we decided that we wanted to celebrate women in podcasting because there hadn't really been a space for that in UK podcasting. And so we created what was then called the Radical Women's Podcast Festival and brought together really talented women in podcasting and production to basically just kind of share their stories 
uh, kind of help train and develop the next generation of podcasters. So it went really, really well last year. We had about 200 women come to King's Place and we had like Carrie Ann Lloyd and Anita Rani came down and it was amazing. And so I just wanted to do it again. I felt like it was a really valuable space and attendees have messaged and said, when is it coming back? We really want it back. Some people got commissions off the back of it. So it's been like a really great experience to create. And this year we basically are focusing on the upskilling of female talent. So it's an all female lineup. Um, who are going to be focusing on production and the technical aspects of podcasting more so this year. So the idea is to offer advice to people who might want to get into podcasting. Yeah, absolutely. And those that are already in it, kind of providing additional support and kind of giving them, I guess, better skills than what they probably started out with. Yeah, because I guess it's a bit of a ridiculous thing for a podcaster to say to another podcaster, but you talk to anyone now and like everyone's got a podcast basically, but there's sort of different levels to which people are doing it, I guess. So you might be someone who's recording it on your iPhone in your bedroom or whatever, and, and that's a totally legitimate way of doing it. But I guess something like this would just help you polish that up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the key thing is that there are people with very different skill sets, very different setups. And I think some people coming who are already podcasters, they're coming from a position of, oh, I kind of just started out doing it this way. So we've got podcast surgeries or audio production surgeries so they can go and sit down with an engineer who they may not have been able to afford to access before. And the engineer can be like, actually, if you tweak your settings this way, and you'll get like a better quality of sound. So it's all about kind of just creating improvement and a higher quality of podcast. What's missing is that there's like for some of us, there's a massive skills gap, especially on the technical and production side. And I think it's really important that there's spaces, affordable spaces for us to be able to learn those skills and access that talent if we need to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because digital age has kind of offered everyone a more even playing field in terms of platforms, I guess. So, it, you know, everyone has something to say. And this is a good way of sort of just helping them say it i suppose yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely who's on the lineup this year apart from um spoiler alert us <laughs> yeah so Carriad's coming back for the success talks alongside you guys badass women's hour all three are going to come down as well we've got gabriella watts who's worked on tons of bbc dramas and documentaries caroline Raphael, who works or I think LCC and like such as Martins and script writing. There's so many people. There's like about 15 to 20 women coming down from within podcasting just to talk about what they do. Loads of women from behind the scenes, so production people. Sarah Golding, who's a voice actress, and she's going to be training people on how to kind of project their voices um, using microphones. Obviously, there's so many people. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, the, those, are, those are the biggest. And then we've got a live show from the Triple Cripples who... I guess have had a couple of viral moments in the last year. They came last year, actually, and were just attendees. And now they're kind of the main live show and talking about their disability activists and sharing their stories, really, about being black women who are identified as disabled and basically kind of creating a really safe space for others that identify in that way to share their stories. So it's going to be a really incredible day of very different voices, very different skills on show and a lot of talent to celebrate. So it's on at King's Place in London on May the 18th, which is, as you hear this, Saturday coming up. Where can people get tickets from? So the official link is solivefestival.com. That's S-O, live and festival com and they're on Eventbrite as well so you could just search Women's Podcast Festival on Eventbrite and it will come up. So there's loads of, there's a few tickets left for the talks and networking 
there's a handful of tickets left for the workshop. Some are more popular than others, so mic training is basically sold out. But there are a few tickets left for, for talks, and that's kind of the key thing, is that you will get access to a room full of amazing, amazing people, amazingly talented people. And where can we find you and the Shout Out Network on Twitter and, you know, various social medias? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, so I'm at Imi Morgan, that's I-M-I and Morgan. And the Shout Out Network can be found at Shout Out LDN on both Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. Thank you very much, Imriel. No worries. Hello, we're on the set of Gentleman Jack with Sally Wainwright. Hi, Sally. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a laugh. A scale of one to ten, how giddy kippers are we? Yeah, oh, sorry, that was a question to me. I thought you were asking Sally. I was like, she won't know. Uh, yeah, I've got a photo of me with people in period costumes, so I'm well happy. Tell us a little bit about Gentleman Jack. What is the story? It's an eight-hour drama that's taken from the diaries of Anne Lister, who owned Chibden Hall in Halifax. She inherited it in 1826, and she is most well-known for writing her huge journals there's 26 volumes four million words we think it's near six million now they've just been digitized and we'll know soon exactly how many words there are but my Anne Lister advisor Anne Choma has been obviously doing a huge amount of work on the journals recently for me for the drama and she reckons there's near six million wow a lot of these journals are in code aren't they yeah yeah a bit like Joe Orton designed to (laughs) obscure the fact that they were gay yeah, uh, I mean, Anne wrote predominantly in code when she was writing about her sex life. Yeah. She did write about other things in code as well, like financial matters, odd little bits and pieces in code, but predominantly it was about her relationships with other women, yeah. This is a story you've been wanting to tell for quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've been working on it for 20 years. I read uh, Jill Eddington's book when it came out in 1998, and that's what really fascinated me. And Jill looked at um, Anne in the 1830s, which is the period of her life that I'm most interested in. Because she was, she was a mature woman by then. She wasn't just... In her, in her early... All Anne's life's interesting. She's, she's, she was this multi-talented, multi-faceted woman. She had a lot about her. She was, she was extraordinarily intelligent. She was very capable. One of the great things about Anne Lister that I absolutely adore, it's, it's not the fact that she's this voluminous journalist. It's how just intelligent she was and how uplifting she was. She really believed life was for living and everything about her exuded passion for life she was fascinated by everything she knew more about medical things than most doctors she met she studied brain surgery under Georges Cuvier in Paris who she was like ahead of the curve with all her thinking she was she was passionate about geology she was passionate about travel she was a great scholar she she could speak about five languages and she was a passionate lover she loved women she absolutely you know it was a really big important part of her life were uh, sexual relationships with other women and she pursued that with, you know, vigour. And um, there are so many things we should celebrate about Anne Lister and it's so amazing that we're only just sort of starting to put her out there and people realise who she is because she's been hidden away for so long because of her sexuality. Yeah. She didn't give a stuff what people thought though, did she? No, because she thought her sexuality was God-given. She thought it was natural that she was born like this. She wasn't ashamed of it. I think Anne Lister had really robust mental health and she had... She had a very good opinion of herself, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean in the way that we should all have good opinions yeah. of ourselves in an ideal world. Isn't it weird that you have to put that caveat in, though? Yeah. But it isn't yeah. in a pejorative way, but yeah. particularly for women, to yeah. think anything that, you know, that you're doing all right, that you're all yeah. right, is like, well, how dare you? Yeah. I mean, for me, that's part of the drama, is I want, 
I want people to enjoy her being so positive about life. It's, you know, as soon as she bursts onto screen, it's like, well, hey, we're going to have fun with this one. You know, she's got so much life in her and she's so always sees the best in everything. She has this Panglossian optimism about the world and everything in it, uh, coupled with an intense intelligence. There's nothing naive about it. I think she's a, she's a really uplifting character in the way Saran's playing. It's just breathtaking. It's just joyous. Yeah, you've yeah. got Saran Jonas. Yeah. <laughs> Which, did you write with Saran in mind? No, I didn't write with anyone in mind because Anne Lister, is, as I say, she's so multifaceted. There's so much to her. She's somebody who could spin so many plates all at the same time. She could charm the socks off anyone. She was a great conversationalist. She she could she would go into a room and everybody would instantly notice her. She'd be three thoughts ahead of everyone around her. She had so much about her. So I, I who the hell can possibly play this woman who's got so much about her? For long enough, I just couldn't see her. I couldn't see her at all. So I started writing it kind of blind because often I do have someone in mind. But then we did have to get down to the practical thing of actually casting someone. And Saran's name came up quite soon. And HBO asked if she would read because they, didn't, they, they hadn't seen a lot of her work. They'd only seen, I think, Dr Foster. So she, very kindly, because, she, you know, she's way beyond somebody else to come in and read. She did come in and read, and she was just amazing. And now, having worked with her for f- five weeks, one of the most amazing things about her performance is she's grasped exactly that, this woman who can do so many things. Every scene, she's doing something different, and she just goes for it. She's, it's, just, it's an extraordinary performance. Well, she's learnt French, which is no small undertaking. She's learned also. She's learned how to deal with horses. She's learnt French. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, carrier bags. <laughs> no, they don't write them. Um, Two vital skills yeah. in life. Uh, I mean, that's what's been so exciting about working with her. She just embraces it and runs with it. And I feel like she she's thrown herself into Anne Lister as much as I have, which is just such a delight to be working with. People who seem to love Anne as much as I do now, and not just Saran, it's the whole crew. We've got it's the most extraordinary crew, the costume, the design, uh, our DOP, makeup, all everybody who's work, working on the show, they just seem to have... Got the, the Anne's optimism for life seems to have become infectious, and it's informing our daily working pattern. Where you know we're all exhausted physically yeah. in week five, but mentally we're still all buzzing, and I've still got a massive smile on my face. Well, we've just great. been on set, and we can verify that the costumes <laughs> are amazing. Yeah, this is the first period piece you've done, is it? No, I did a film about the Bronte sisters. Well, you did, yeah. But that was the first period piece. That's the first period piece I've ever written. Never mind directors. Is it? Is it different? Yeah, it's different because it's more time-consuming. Every scene has to be constructed because you can't see anything that isn't made up. Is it difficult to write from the point of view of dialogue? How do you approach that? How you um, spoke in eighteen twenty. The, the difference for me isn't now. period. The difference for me between what I've written before, things like Happy Valley and Lost Tango and Scott Bailey, is that that's all pretend, whereas the two period pieces I've written are based on real people. So with the Brontes, I particularly felt it had to be very accurate because people know a lot about the Brontes. But with Anne Lister, I've taken a few more liberties, partly because people know less about her and partly because it's an eight-part series and it, hopefully it's going to continue. So it's half made up. and No, it's not half made up. It's very much based on the journals. But then within that, I've taken liberties. I've borrowed things from earlier in her life and borrowed things from later in her life. So I've, I've taken more liberties with it and I've just tried to push it further using her personality, her massive, huge, joyous... Life enhancing personality. I think taking the life affirming what she would have wanted. wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like. I'm, I, th- I like to think she's smiling on us and she's quite happy that we're doing this rather than uh, thinking we're taking liberties. I think um, I th- it feels like we've been a bit blessed so far with what we've shot, and it does feel like she's smiling down on us. 
which makes her sound like God, which of course she is. Because <laughs> um, she's like God. It's, I think I if you let Anne Lister into your heart, your life that. will be better. I often think that, which is a bit like God, but there you go. <laughs> you mentioned HBO. Yeah. And so it's a partnership with HBO and the BBC. That's right, yeah. And it's the first one of these that they've done, right? As far as I understand, it's the first time BBC and HBO have co-produced. Yeah. And a, a woman show. I, mean, I might be wrong, but I think that's the way yeah. it is. How did that come about? I got the commissioned by the BBC and then went over to America and tried to find more funding, and HBO were the ones who came on board. They do love a period drama in America, don't they? They do. I, ho- I hope they'll love this one. I think it's the first time we've got a mainstream BBC primetime drama in which the main character is gay. Really? So wow. I don't know how that will go down with... People in America who like period dramas. Well, I was going to say, because they do tend to like Downton Abbey and things like exactly. that. Exactly. So like. this is a bit different in that yeah. sense. Half of them will have been in the closet, though, right? Mm. In Downton. Yeah. Well, at least some of them, I would yeah. have thought. I can't think of an HBO drama, a period drama. I sort of associate HBO with much more like modern kind of... Oh, no, they do loads stuff. of period dramas. Usually set in America, like Bobble Empire and Deadwood. Carnival. Oh, yeah. They're all period. It's Game of Thrones, a period drama. <laughs> uh, well, people like when they're defending sexism in Game of Thrones, they like to think so, don't they? It's just how it was at the time. Yeah. All the women had the tits out. And it's just a thing. Everyone had a dragon. Is there any after this? I know it's very difficult when you're in the, the throes of something to, mm. to to think about the future. After this, are there are there any other women in history you'd quite like to shine a light on? The, I've often thought about writing about Amy Johnson. Oh, wow. She's not quite as amazing as Anne Lister, to be honest. She was pretty amazing, but I don't think anybody's as amazing as Anne Lister. She was um, a bit of a character. It's a bit scary, because I I don't know where you go after Anne Lister, to be honest. I might just have to retire. You've peaked. No! (laughs) No, we won't let you, even if we have to keep you in this trailer. (laughs) Maybe you could be start writing about the future. You've done the past with Anne Lister. You can go forward and be stuck. Predict some more amazing women. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I think what's interesting about this is that we're bringing to life a woman who should have been celebrated long before now. And maybe there are other women out there who we don't know about, who have lived extraordinary lives, who should have a, a light shone on them. Do you feel a sense of responsibility in bringing her to life in this way? I try not to, because I don't want to be worthy about it. I mean, my primary objective is always to entertain people. You know, that's one of the many reasons I love Anne Lister. She's really entertaining. Oh. And I think if you, you want to glean political points from it, that's, it should always feel incidental. I have one last question. Mm. Did you ever find out what happened to the man on that bus? <laughs> <laughs> no. Because we put the story back out in the world, Sally, and we no. just wondered if you'd had any comeback from that. No, I haven't. got in touch. No. <laughs> that's good. I don't think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Either. It's oh. a long time ago. <laughs> Statue limitations has um, probably passed. You're probably. I know, but it's it's a kind of question that teases you out of thought, really, because I don't know. Maybe that's your next. It's a bit scary, isn't it? (laughs) The man on the bus. Yeah, that's a scary question. What happened to the man on the bus? (laughs) I ruined everything. I can only (laughs) apologise. No, you've upset me now. (laughs) And on that bombshell, (laughs) be the point to. I've just got to say that Sally is laughing but staring at me in a way that I've got to go down. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks.
I'm joined on the phone by Instagrammer, blogger, influencer, I don't know, a multi-hyphenate, I think, is what Emma Gannon <laughs> yes. would call you. Natalie Lee, a.k.a. Style Me Sunday. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us this morning. I know you're very busy. You're on a photo shoot right now. Or... I am. It's, a, it's an underwear photo shoot. So... Oh, is it? It's very on brand for what we're about to talk about, which is that you are participating in the Vitality London 10K. 10,000 yes, is what it's right. actually called, which is happening on the 27th of May. You're doing it in a sort of special wave of pant-wearing, body-confidence-enhancing, <laughs> mental-health-awareness-promoting women, organised by Bryony yes, Gordon. Exactly. Yeah, so as you said, on Monday, which is a bank holiday, the 27th of May, we are running the Vitality London 10,000, and we're going to be doing it in our underwear. Obviously, you guys don't have to do it in your underwear, but we would really love you to come and join us and run. It's 10K. You don't actually have to run. I mean, you can walk it too. You know, we'll be there to support you and to hold your hand. If you did want to run it in your underwear, that would be great. But also, it'd just be lovely to see loads of different women, different sizes, shapes and colours and abilities all coming together to celebrate us and getting active. How has this come about and, and how did you come to be involved in it? Bryony Gordon approached me about it oh, quite a few months ago now. I was doing a live podcast with her and um, she was like, oh, I'm going to be running my underwear again because she ran the marathon last year in her underwear and she did it with Jade and she got such a massive positive response you know women just want to see women of all shapes and sizes and research shows that if you see lots of different types of bodies then it makes you feel better about your own body image and self-confidence and your self-esteem improves so we want to show that it doesn't matter what you look like, what size you are, you can still get out there and get get active and not let that hold you back. So I'm all about that on my Instagram. Mm -hmm. That's a really big theme for me. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a no-brainer for me to get involved. And, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to it to the day it's going to be a lot of fun a lot of laughing a lot of giggling and just just a really good time I've got so many of my friends involved as well and lots of my followers your blog is all about sort of body confidence and fashion as well and how fashion yeah. can kind of like I guess enhance body confidence and, and confidence in general yeah. have you always been sort of sporty or is this kind of like a new thing and how have you been finding training yeah. I haven't always been sporty no I was very unsporty at school I remember you know doing the cross country and literally taking a, a, a shortcut obviously that wasn't allowed <laughs> yeah I used um, to do that not and running was definitely not my thing I have really got into exercise I think a bit more since I've had children I'm really keen to role model that being active is just a way of life and it's just really good for all areas of your life but especially your mental health and I have noticed that when I can fit exercise into my life really 
quite well that I'm a better mum, I'm a better person, and I just feel so much better um, when I'm exercising regularly. And I've tried so many different things. At the moment, I'm really into running, obviously, and dancing. Yes, I've seen Um, this on your Instagram. I was doing a little bit of research, obviously, and I've seen a video (laughs) on your Instagram of you doing an absolutely bloody amazing rendition of uh, Britney Spears' You Drive Me Crazy. Yeah. So yeah, did you like it? It was. I I was really jealous. I was like, I wish I could do oh, that. That looks fantastic. You absolutely can, and that's the whole point. You know, we. I've. I mean, I've been going for over a year now, and it's just getting the confidence to go. It probably took me a whole year to actually get the confidence to go to the class, but once I did it, it just gets better and better, and you grow in confidence, and it's fantastic. That's it. Well, I'm as soon as I've edited this, I'm signing up. Oh, amazing. How we look and how we see ourselves and our sort of body confidence is a big reason why young women stop participating yeah. in sports. So young girls tend to drop out in their yeah. teens because they become right. like very body conscious. Do you think that's something that absolutely. continues into later life? Oh, hell yeah. It's absolutely true. I think, you know, how people view themselves and how they are worried about how other people see them is a huge thing that stops women especially from exercising. And I think it's because, you know, you go to the gyms and you don't really see lots of different body shapes and sizes in the gym. Mm. I think brands need to do it more and gyms need to be doing it more. But encouraging everyone to get involved in exercise and to keep active and actually you know if there's so many benefits other than it just being about losing weight for me it's not about that it's far more about helping my mental health and oh god yeah keeping active and you know showcasing to my girls that exercise is good for the soul it's you know it's Mm. just really good for the soul and if we can just help other women to feel like they can do it too you don't have to be size 10 to put on some leggings and go and jiggle about can you tell us a little bit about your blog what it's about and where we can find it it's mainly about fashion one of my taglines is um fashion with feeling so i talk about how You can use fashion to really enhance or change your mood. And I'm a very big believer in women being able to wear whatever the hell they like. You don't have to dress for your size or for a body shape. I'm really supportive of, yeah, just going with whatever you want to wear and owning it, feeling good in it. So I talk a lot about trying to increase confidence because you know lack of self-esteem is a really big issue for a lot of women Mm. it's really it really resonates with them it's very supportive very encouraging very empowering and hopefully inspiring inspiring women to feel good about themselves again and to not let things hold them back from achieving everything they want to achieve and where can we find it you can find me at style me sunday and 
that's everywhere. Well, yeah. that's easy. Excellent. Yeah. You talked about the run that you're doing on the 27th, and people yeah. can participate in that by signing up before the 17th of May, which is Friday. So you can do that by visiting Vitality London. 10,000.co.uk and you'll be in the celebrate you wave yes that's right we want as many of you to sign up as absolutely possible so come and join us it's going to be a lot of fun i promise you you can run in your underwear or you can run in whatever you feel comfortable in but just come and join us we'd love to see you there natalie thanks so much for chatting to us jen thank you it's been lovely Oh hey, we don't usually do an end bit, but as there's no Dunleavy Does Dystopia, we thought we'd leave you with the thought of some utopia. As in, what's coming up on the podcast? There is a fresh portion of Sporty Chops this Sunday when Jen chats to kick it out Sarah Train about homophobia and racism in football. Sunday, which is May the 19th if you prefer dates to days, also offers an opportunity to come see us live in front of your very faces as we are on stage at King's Place in London with the boss, that's right, Sarah Millican, and also the brilliant Sindhu V and awesome Andrew McLean. I'm in the hosting chair and Jen's in the other one and it will be a corker. They always are. There are still a few tickets left and you can grab them at standardissuepodcast.com. It would be ace to see you there. Next week's podzine is another doozy. I know, I know, I'm saying that, but it's because it's true. I'm chatting to our music guru, Liz Buckley, about the legend that is Aretha Franklin. Jen's catching up with Sandra Gamper and Katie Cager about their new podcast, Ems the Word, which aims to break the silence and stigma of miscarriage and baby loss. And we've also got a dose of the excellent Emma Gannon, giving us some tips on how to turn that craft into a career or that side hustle into a startup and talking about her new book, The Multi-Hyphen Method. If you're not already, then please subscribe on Acast or iTunes. And, you know, come and have a natter with us on Twitter, where we're at Standard Issue UK. And always bloody chuffed to hear from you. Standard Issue for all women.